What wants to emerge? This is the question we've been asking here at Buddhist Geeks, looking forward to the next year. And I wanted to share that a few things have come up for us as the most important response to this inquiry. I invite you to check out more about these three areas of focus for us next year and to support us if you're able at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. The three things that we're focusing on most clearly next year are one, we're reimagining the Buddhist Geeks podcast, moving to a new format and to a new season-based approach. We're also growing the Buddhist Geeks dojo, our cloud-based sangha, our training community of now 200 people who are practicing together and exploring together online. And the third thing is we're launching an entirely new training program called Meditate.io that is designed to connect the breadth of folks being introduced to meditation through things like smartphone apps to the depth of training that's possible traditionally only through wisdom traditions like Buddhism. So this is a secular program aimed at helping people move from practicing a short amount of time each day and getting the some of the initial benefits of meditation to going deeper and seeing some of the more profound results of meditation in their own lives. So if any of these projects sound interesting, you want to learn more about them. And if you're able to support this and support our work, this takes a huge amount of time, effort, financial resources to get these things off the ground in a way that honors the really deep heart behind them. And so your support is deeply appreciated and deeply needed. You can find out more again at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. I think also about this idea that our, you know, our awareness kind of likes to swing between extremes and noticing that in myself and my tendency to um, really want to like desperately prove that I exist. So like, why aren't you listening to me? But my criticism of this film is really important too. And like, I'm here, my story is real versus like the pendulum swinging the other way towards annihilation and wanting to be like, I just forget it. I don't even want to exist. I just want to, you know, have a couple cocktails, dance until I'm not sure that I'm aware or not or whatever. And so the mind kind of swinging between those and again, trying to find that space between those two. Because what else am I not noticing? I'm noticing those really loud kind of desires, that desire to um, completely be at one with the universe um, versus the desire to be like really present and of the body just noticing the mind swing between that could even like in the time of an hour walking down the street kind of vacillate between that wildly so yeah so noticing I think you mentioned this idea that uh bringing awareness to the story and kind of watching it dissolve and snuff out um seeing what happens when I 
feel like I can zoom out and maybe watch that pendulum swing, not zone out. Ethan Nickturn says this, zoom out, not zone out. So not like space out and forget that it's even happening, but to zoom out and maybe get a little perspective, which just to bring it back to science fiction, another reason I love the idea of the space crone, the idea of stories taking place in outer space, because recognizing um, the tininess of our planet in the grand scheme of things, even if that's just an imaginative process, I think can give you that perspective to also imagine zooming out and noticing that the story is one among many. Yeah, you know, I was gonna, I was gonna say, that, uh, and I, I know you you mentioned before, you know, all conversations have, at some level, are adversarial because we, we we share different experiences and perspectives, and yet they're also they all have a converging element too. You know, there's there's some way in which our understandings converge, uh, at least in moments, and that's always really interesting. But yeah, but 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 just to say, like the one the area of convergence right now that I'm noticing is, you know. The way that I understand my my practice now, and the way that I, you know, when I teach meditation, I really don't see the reality tunnel or the story you know, that people have about themselves and what they're doing and what the point of it all. I don't really see those things as being problematic in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it's more the it's more the again the the delusional quality of of not realizing that that reality is always bigger than what we think. Right, and then. And this is the piece that I've I've kind of started thinking more about is how do we get out of a reality tunnel, you know, or how do we see the delusional, you know, holding on? It seems like only through, like you said, zooming out, which to me is only through stepping into another reality tunnel and mm-hmm. looking at the reality tunnel we were in in the previous moment, <laughs> you know, right. do we or do we see that it is it is a story that there is something that is a way of looking or is a way of thinking or seeing, you know, or being, um, and and mindfulness to me is a really interesting reality tunnel. It's like mm-hmm. it's like a way of perceiving and experiencing the world that has so much to do with like the senses and mm-hmm. uh, consciousness and this subjective experience. Um, and, and and most people don't have tra- at least most people you know in our culture don't have that training growing up, and so it's a huge revelation. And you said you like teaching people like mm-hmm. a beginning mindfulness, and I imagine that's part part of the reason. Yeah, oh, definitely. Seeing people's head explode, you know, when they- yeah, like oh, like it's one of the most frequent I think responses I get when I teach. They go, "Oh, that's mindfulness," and yeah, this ability to yeah just be able to get some perspective on what's happening. I'm interested in this way that, uh, and I've definitely gone through periods of this in my own practice, uh, that we might have this kind of brush with that expansive, um, interconnected feeling. uh, And that becomes kind of our new story to cling to this new thing that we're trying to use our practice to experience. I think Chagam Trumpa kind of talked about that as uh, spiritual materialism. Um, and I think about it in the same way that Douglas Rushkoff, who's another author who I really like, um, he kind of talks about the seductiveness of the psychedelic experience, which on one hand, you could be using psychedelics really in an escapist way and slash, or it could also be this way for you to learn some, some about how your mind works, about how you experience consciousness, about how habitual you are in your daily life, whatever, but that there's this risk in doing psychedelics and then falling in love with 
that one new story that you got from it and it becoming your new story rather than um, mindfulness being this process of the way Thich Nhat Hanh describes it as kind of turning compost that we take um, these things that we think of as uh, negative, you know, anxious thoughts, um, distractions, whatever they are, change our relationship to them kind of transform them into um, something that's useful for us, something that's healthy and good. Um, but I think that kind of necessitates this process of um, constantly uprooting your stories, that you need to be constantly uprooting them um, or, you know, the compost is just sitting, gathering flies in your apartment. Yeah, I, it's, it's really, that's an interesting way of, of looking at it. Um. And I, I, I mean, I share, I share that experience of um, falling in love with certain stories, and and, all, and you know, and not even, and and, and just really not thinking that they are stories, just really thinking this is it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish everyone else got this, so mm-hmm. we could have a reasonable conversation. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, and then later, you know, kind of having that dawn, that dawning of understanding of like, oh, there's something missing here. There's something. This doesn't quite capture it all. I remember I was I, I fell in love with the stories that uh, this philosopher named Ken Wilber uh, wrote, and he, he had these grand meta theories about how everything interconnected, and you know, um, these beautiful, uh, elegant, you know, simple models to kind of explain so many different things. And while I still appreciate those models and stories, and I still I still occasionally step into them. Um, to look at the world, uh, it was a huge waking up for me to realize that, one, um, I can't actually um, uh, integrate all of the paradoxes and contradictions that exist in the world. Mm-hmm. And that the assumption that I could <laughs> uh, was itself the, un- the unquestioned belief at the heart of, the, of my story. Um, and, th- and that was a whole ripping away process and a waking up process. Um, it was very painful, and mm-hmm. it, and it, and, but it, and it necessitated. And this, I think this is what's really interesting because I kind of have this feeling I want to. I want the conversation to also reconnect with the relationship between mindfulness and practice and mm-hmm. and and the world and and life and our collective stories. Um, but I did I did find that you know in that, like in that process. Uh, of letting go of that story, you know, that I can integrate everything into this one big picture, uh, that my actions changed. Like, mm-hmm. very specifically, I started asking questions of people that I normally wouldn't pay attention to because I didn't think they had anything interesting to say. And then I'd start learning that they did have stuff interesting to say. And I started learning from more people. And it was such, a, it was such an eye-opener to see how arrogant um, I had become in that story. Yeah, and I think there's, um, once that kind of honeymoon period is over, um, I remember I was talking to a teacher about it, and and they were like, well, what do you think about the fact that you kept um, practicing after you kind of had that painful realization? And I was like, I don't know, that I'm stubborn. And they said, you know, no, it actually shows um, a little bit of maturity to um, not be totally discouraged by that and to actually continue turning the compost. Um, but it also makes me think of this risk that we sometimes fall into with like proselytizing mindfulness. Mm. Um, I see that sometimes when I think about, um, my first experience 
kind of integrating my activism and my mindfulness was during Occupy Wall Street. We would, um, uh, the Interdependence Project um, would hold these um, meditation sessions in the park and we would, um, the Occupy Meditation Group would do these kind of grounding sessions before um, the sometimes very chaotic general assemblies. Um, So that was kind of my first dose of that. But sometimes what I see is, you know, people being like, I don't know, like, well, let's go to that protest and like help everybody meditate. And so I sometimes think about the fact that um, meditation isn't necessarily the most skillful thing to offer in every situation or this idea you sometimes hear, you know, like if every public school student was taught meditation, um, we'd achieve world peace by this time or, you know, whatever these kinds of proclamations are. And I think um, we fall into that risk of wanting other people to be behaving differently than they are. Um, and I think of kind of, a, I constantly have to ask myself what the skillful use of my um, knowledge and energy will be in certain situations. But I sometimes think that um, the thing that we can bring as practitioners to um, protests or to um, rallies and things like this isn't necessarily getting everyone to sit down and meditate, but maybe being a mindful presence, being able to help hold the space for things that are happening, um, bear, even bearing witness without succumbing to jumping in and wanting to fix the problem or turning away because it's too painful. Um, so j- just even being present. But I think um, there is sometimes this almost romanticization of you know what mindfulness can do for every situation. And I tend to think of it as a tool that depending on your intention um, could be used for very different things. Um, So trying to think in terms of skillful means of what the best thing to offer in a certain situation is. Yeah. I like that you keep going back to intention um, and talking about intention because that sort of for me also feels like a critical Point and it's it's kind of I think maybe one of the blind sides of the way that mindfulness secular mindfulness is sort of how it's formulated because uh, I was thinking about this the other day you know talking about this the other day um, how you know mindfulness in some ways the root of it right was was kind of more connected to the idea of remembering remembering mm-hmm. to come back to something remembering to do something and that remembering. Uh, in early Buddhism, very much had to do with remembering that, you know, experience has these three characteristics of impermanence, of dukkha, of suffering, and of selflessness. And that, and that you know, what we're remembering is to come back to a recognition of that and mm-hmm. so that we can dissolve the afflictive emotions, dissolve sure. the three poisons. And, and then what, what's so interesting to me about what you're saying is, you know, it, mindfulness in in service of whatever our intention is, is not the same mindfulness that's discussed exactly in the early Buddhist texts, (laughs) because we're not, (laughs) that's mostly not what we're using mindfulness for most of the time. Uh, I'd say, you know, especially folks that are learning at, say, MBSR or learning a secular mindfulness course. Um, And so that's really interesting, because on the one hand, it opens up this criticism from the you know, from at least one reality tunnel, the Buddhist, you know, early Buddhist reality tunnel, says, well, you're not getting it. You're not getting what this is supposed to lead to. <laughs> On the other hand, for me, it feels like it liberates mindfulness mm-hmm. to be something that's multifaceted, that could be 
connected to a different intention or different view, you know, right view and right intention being, you know, two of the aspects of, uh, you, t- you talked about right thought, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, mm-hmm. translation of, um, you know, of uh, ethics, mm-hmm. actually, <laughs> the training of ethics. Yeah. So, yeah, just curious what, you, what your experience with that is. Well, it also makes me think about that, uh, yeah, that remembering aspect. So remembering to come back to that bigger view, which I think in terms of right view, that first step, um, talking about, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter if you believe in it, but at least coming back to the perspective that um, things are bigger than your immediate experience and um, maybe you don't exist in the world in exactly the way that you assume you do as kind of a separate and discrete unit, but that um, remembering that you're interconnected because we don't necessarily maintain awareness of that all the time. Um, so then that second step, that right intention, or um, I really just love thinking about it in terms of science fiction and improv um, creators who use this uh, syntax of yes and or both and logic of opening up to um, you know I have my I have my feeling about how things are going rooted in my experience but remembering to come back to this syntax of thought that says that's true for me and these other things are true for other people. Uh, and opening up to being more, I think of it as kind of like a radically inclusive view. And I think people get, it can kind of ruffle feathers because you get this feeling that, oh, is all truth, you know, relative. And um, then how can you say there is good or bad in the world? And I think it, it opens up a lot of really kind of juicy, interesting conversations about that, where we can say, um, on one hand, I have uh, my kind of version about how I think things are going that's rooted in my experience, but um, gently challenging myself to also open up to um, the way things are going for other people. And I think so much of the um, adversarial nature of that is inherent in our language that kind of pits us as either or um, this kind of materialism that uh, says, well, there must be one objective version of this. Versus uh, kind of saying, well, what is the, how, how can I open up to my experience in a way that's going to kind of help me build character, help me to connect to other people? And maybe um, that involves noticing what my cognitive biases are, which, you know, by their very nature kind of filter in certain information that help me prove that I'm right about something and filter out the information that seems to prove me wrong. Um, so to me, it's kind of this, uh, radically inclusive, uh, constantly remembering to open back up. I feel myself narrowing in on something. Can I remember to open back up? Yeah. Yeah. And that opening back up, I mean, to me, using the language of storing, it sounds almost sounds like you're, what you're doing in a way is opening back up to a new kind of story that you're trying to inhabit more of Mm -hmm. like more deeply yeah because then there's this tendency and like we mentioned like I studied uh critical theory in college which included feminist theory which included postmodern theory so I have a tendency to get very academic and very thought and you know 
thought oriented and heady about things like this, but using the practice of mindfulness, which I was so shocked at how bodily it was, how you really are um, kind of touching the earth to use uh, a Buddhist phrase, but um, trying to embody a new story instead of just think about it. Uh, And that's a very bodily process. Yeah, yeah. And that circles back around to me to this, this, you know, that quote from David about uh, is, is the point to find the correct stories, the point to get rid of stories, is the point to learn a story in a new way. Uh, I feel like what you're describing is in a way talking about a tool or a method of noticing certain kinds of stories that enables us to remember to return to to storing in a new way to 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 this kind of this sense of a story and this feels true for me the sense of a story that um, is bigger that's emerging that includes more mm-hmm. without but that's incomplete you know that it's not I, I know that my story is not total mm-hmm. um, and yet sometimes it feels total so it's, it's a tricky <laughs> thing and, and you're talking about delusion you know, one, one version of delusion in Buddhism is you know there's delusion and there's the end of delusion and then in the Zen tradition uh, this this really uh, tripped me out when I when I, I sort of got what this was about uh, you know in the four Bodhisattva vows uh, one translation of one of them is delusion is endless hmm. I vow to put an end to it <laughs> Man, those paradoxes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's really interesting because I think there's this paradox that we kind of embody too between um, this navigating uh, kind of ultimate and relative reality. And I think I think it was Robert Anton Wilson. He talks about the perspective image. You know, there's that optical illusion. Um, of the old woman who, if you look at it a different way, it looks like a young woman and that your mind can only really grasp viewing it as one or the other. Um, but to challenge yourself, to be able to see both at one time. Uh, and I think, uh, other people have had kind of stories about, or, uh, now I keep using the word story, have had ideas about, um, different, uh, ways that you can do that or different, ways that holding two sides of a paradox in your mind at the same time um, can really radically think, open things up for you. Um, and maybe, gosh, do you remember that meme that was from last year? It was like a dress that looked white or gold oh, yeah. to different people. Yeah, yeah, sure. That, that blew my mind because it felt like, again, just watching on Twitter as something that I've thought about as very dharmic for a long time. Uh watching like a ton of people having a conversation about it outside of, you know, a meditative or Buddhist context. But I'm, I was sitting right next to my girlfriend. She was seeing the dress as white. I was seeing it as gold or was it was like blue or gold. I don't know. It, it was, was like, it was blue and I think it was like blue and gold. Yeah. There, yeah, was there are colors you wouldn't think you could, they could be either of. Right. And so I was sitting right next to her watching her experience this thing completely differently and I'd been looking at it long enough that it started to flicker for me and I was just like holy crap (laughs) here's this thing that your mind isn't necessarily supposed to be able to do like seeing this optical illusion as the old woman and the young woman at the same time um but that in kind of having that bodily experience that perceptual experience um 
and watching people both argue about it, but then also kind of having the realization with each other that um, it was possible to see it differently. And I don't know, I, that was kind of mind blowing <laughs> for me to watch yeah. that. And then, and then a bunch of people trying to explain why it was that mm-hmm. way. <laughs> yeah. You know, the science yeah. behind it, the perceptual, that, that was fun too, to watch everyone try, try to, to kind of like wrap their minds around the reality of it. Yeah, and that it was something that you you had to experience. People were experiencing through looking at the image, and that was very different than talking about it, right? Which reminds me of these experiences that you have, kind of uprooting your stories through mindfulness. We could all talk about, um, you know, how different people wield stories in different ways, and some stories um, are because of access to power, and sort of all of these really important theoretical kind of activisty. Um, ideas that I really love having conversations about, but then to have that experience in an instant kind of makes that, there's that aha moment that's really, um, yeah, that's really fascinating to me. And that it also points out that uh, a mindfulness practice isn't the only way that you can have that, that there are lots of kind of, once you take this perspective of learning these things, take the view that you can learn from these experiences, then pretty much... Um, anything you go about in your life can kind of provide you with experiences to that end. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.